Well, as we have already noted, today is Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Anybody here, whoever here has had a mother, raise their hand. Okay. We're all in the same boat. And it's not by accident that uh, we've arrived in our study of First Timothy. If you're a guest with us this morning, we're working our way through the book of First Timothy. It's no accident that on Mother's Day, we've arrived at uh, our passage for today. It speaks of men and women, and it even speaks of motherhood. But this passage sounds very strange to our 21st century ears. It could even sound offensive, depending on one's own ideas as they read it. And for any present-day American Christian, it raises a multitude of questions. So I'm going to read it this morning. It's 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 to 15. If you're using one of our Bibles, uh, it's uh, there on page 1410. Listen to what uh, the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit, says. Verse 9, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now, I told you it raised some questions, didn't I? (laughs) This paragraph, for our generation, is one of the most controversial paragraphs in the entire Bible. You would be hard put to find seven other verses in the scripture that create more conversation and more disagreement than these seven verses. Matter of fact, in my study, I have an entire book that's written just about these seven verses and recent scholarship about it. Speculation about its meaning fly about. Intellectual honesty gives way to personal agenda. People argue passionately. Confusion, actually, is the thing that often reigns. How do we understand a passage like this one? I think, first of all, we begin our understanding of it by remembering that what it is that we believe about this book, the whole book. And we remember that this book is God's word. Amen? So if, if this book isn't God's word, if this is just um, some very uh, profound but, but, but on the other hand kind of ordinary piece of ancient literature, if it's just something we found from long ago that has some good things in it but it's just the work of men, well, then we're wasting our time anyway. Why are we even talking about it, right? I, I could, it could be in an English class in, in, in high school or college or something. But, but no, we actually believe that this book is God's word, that God inspired the writing of this word. So it carries with it authority and blessing. It's what God 
wanted to be written and he wants us to read it, grapple with it, understand it, and apply it to our lives. It's important for us to understand it. It holds help for us in our own lives. It's worth our effort to try to understand it. We need, we need to do that. And so when we come to the Bible and we come to passages like this, especially this one here, it, it, it prompts me to, to widen the focus. So we're going to take some time and we're going to back off from, from first Timothy and widen the focus of the lens and look at the whole issue, if we can, of manhood and womanhood as we see it in the scriptures. And then, not today, but, but in a couple of weeks, then we'll come back to this particular scripture and look at it in more, in more detail. And in the process, we're going to look at a lot of different passages that speak to this issue. This issue is important. Manhood and womanhood. What, it, what do those things mean? Our, your pastors and elders studied this for, for quite a while last year. And we came to some conclusions and we decided back last year that we wanted to look for an opportunity to teach about this subject because it is so needed. And so we've decided that uh, beginning today and then next week, then we're going to take a two-week break. And then all of June, we're going to look on Sunday morning at various places in the Bible that speak about manhood and womanhood as designed by God and as instructed by God. In June, even, we're going to coordinate our Sunday school classes so that from the youth on up, uh, the Sunday school class sessions will be coordinated with, with the sermons. One of the reasons why we think this is important is that there's a tremendous confusion in our culture today about what manhood and womanhood are. Back in, is there, as far back now as in the late 80s, the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood had a meeting in Danvers, Connecticut, and they drafted a statement called the, which is now called the Danvers Statement. You'll be hearing more about that later. But in the rationale for, for making this statement, they made a few observations about our culture. And let me read them. I think you'll agree with them. I won't read them all. But they said this, that we have been moved in our purpose the purpose of drafting this statement by the following contemporary developments, which we observe with deep concern. Number one, the widespread uncertainty and confusion in our culture regarding the complementary differences between masculinity and femininity. Number two, the tragic effects of this confusion in unraveling the fabric of marriage woven by God out of the beautiful and diverse strands of manhood and womanhood. Another point, the widespread ambivalence regarding the values of motherhood, vocational homemaking, and the many ministries historically performed by women. Another point, the growing claims of legitimacy for sexual relationships which have biblically and historically been considered illicit or perverse, and the increase in pornographic portrayal of human sexuality. Another point, the upsurge of physical and emotional abuse in the family. And then I'll mention just one more. The emergence of roles for men and women in church leadership that do not conform to biblical teaching but backfire in the crippling of a biblically faithful witness. 
There's a tremendous confusion in our culture today concerning this whole issue. I think the word, as I, as I look at, at our culture and I, and I interact with people and as I read, I think the word, a good word that, that stands out to me is the word confusion. There's a confusion about what does it mean to be a man and, but not a woman? And what does it mean to be a woman but not a, not a man? What does that mean? How do we relate to each other? Some people would like to, in the face of this confusion, point accusatory fingers at the feminists and say, that's all your fault. Well, I don't, I don't think it's all feminism's fault, but feminism itself has certainly contributed to some of the confusion. There's been good, good things about that, but not all good. As a matter of fact, I've been very fascinated as I've been preparing for this. Uh, I've been reading some of the feminists. I've been, I've been getting an education. It's very, very interesting. But what I've discovered and what some of you already knew, because I'm stepping into ground that I haven't actually read a lot of that prior to this study, is that the feminists don't agree with each other. There's a tremendous uh, difference of opinion There are those who want to equalize everything. There's absolutely no difference between male and female, and that's the end of the story. And then there are others who have, like Christina Hoff Summers, who's written the book recently, Who Stole Feminism? How Women Have Betrayed Women. And then her latest book, The War Against Boys, How Misguided Feminism is Harming Our Young Men. Case can be made that with the striving Uh, from the influence of feminism or just that thought correcting problems that were legitimate in the past but nevertheless there's a a push in a certain direction it's spreading confusion in our young people and our boys growing up not knowing what's it really mean to be a man and uh, is there something wrong anyway with being a male don't know about this you know in colleges for a long time now there's always there's been women's studies right women's studies classes there's even departments of women's studies well in Rutgers now there's a class being offered it's called male studies the pushback is coming and this guy that's teaching it this professor I don't know that he is a Christian but the culture itself is saying wait a minute wait a minute isn't there a difference? Matter of fact, if you want to see a fun website, it's called The Art of Manliness. Now there's websites and discussions and college classes about, wait a second, though, I'm a man. <laughs> now I'm not a woman. But there's confusion. There's just a, our culture is in the throes of confusion. You know, we, we see it with Um, The discussion about homosexual marriage, just a tremendous confusion about ourselves as men and women. Well, what does God have to say about this? Well, actually, he has a lot to say. And what I want you to do, what I want to do today is to go back to creation in Genesis chapter one. So Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And chapter 1 is the first chapter. So I, don't, I didn't look it up at what page it is. But I think you, you got it. You can find it. And I want us to look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2 as if we hadn't seen it before. 
And I want us to see there foundations that are laid for us to understand who we are as men and women, male and female. And to get a, a glimpse of the wonderful picture that God has for, for us, what we can be. Now, I know that Genesis 3 is coming. Genesis 3 is when sin came in to the picture and messed us up. Lord willing, we're going to start with that next week. But I want for a moment for us just to get a glimpse again, perhaps for the first time for some of you. What's God's plan? What was that original plan that had no sin messing it up? We come to Genesis, uh, and and this is what I plan to do. I'm going to read certain sections. I'm just going to read them. Then I'm going to go back, and I'm going to read them through again and, and comment on them. Genesis 1, verse 26. Much of the, many of the days of creation had, had happened. And he gets to 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky, to every living thing that moves on the earth, which has life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now look down at chapter two, verse four. He switches into his second account where he focuses on the creation of man. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made heaven and earth. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust of the, from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Skip to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate and, and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground of the out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, for those of you who are note takers, and I know there's a lot of you, you're used to the way I preach. I usually have lots of points. I'm going to do something different today, so it's going to make it harder on you who like to take notes. I'm not going to really have points uh, until I get to the end. I want to read back through this passage and, and point out some things. What I want to do is do a little more teaching than preaching this morning. It's a little bit different. And I want to try to make observations from this passage without lots of interpreting it until the end. Okay? We just want to observe. Let's look at this passage again as if we hadn't seen it before and note some things about it. I know that their situation is different than ours and that sin has now entered in. But we'll get there if you can hang with me for a week. Can we put off sin for a week? Yeah. So let's, uh, it'd be great if it was that easy, wouldn't it? Look again at Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us, then that's when it, the us there is a reference to the Trinity. God taking counsel within himself. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. First of all, you remember now, there was nothing but God. And then God wills light and darkness and the heavens and the earth. And he brings this earth into being. This phenomenally wonderful earth, this globe we live on, full of wonder. He's created it. And then he says, let us make man in our image. The observation I want to make is that man was created by a decision of God. Our existence is not a result of an accident or of, of chance or of molecules bumping into each other. We're actually created by on purpose by God. Amen. I'm going to be tempted several times through this whole morning to take tangents, but we're not here by accident. We're here because God decided us to be here. And then you'll note that there is a purpose in this creation. And the purpose is to rule the earth. Look at this again, verse 26. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then what does he say? And let them rule over. And that word rule is not a bad word. It's a good word. It's like let them manage. Let them take control and manage this earth. That's what we're here for to do. That's what God put us on this globe for is to manage the earth. To, to run things for, for God's glory. To rule the earth. Let me read for you an account of this in Psalm 8. A few verses from Psalm 8. 
He said, the psalmist says, David said, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God created us, put us on the planet, put Adam there and and Eve and says, I've put you here for a purpose. Your purpose is to manage this whole globe for me and my glory. Amen. That's what we're put here for is to run the earth, to rule it, subdue it, subdue again, not meaning a negative sense, just to bring everything under control and in order. Then look at verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Note now, it's it's just the short version. Chapter 2 gives us more of the details. But now in the short verse, it says God created man. And he only says two things. He makes two main points here. Number one, man is created in the image of God. And number two, man is created male and female. Isn't that interesting? We're created uh, in the image of God. All right. But we're both equally, we both equally bear the image of God, but we are male and female. We are different. There's a difference between us. Our identity as a man or a woman is being highlighted in the very first chapter of the Bible. And like I said, both man and woman are in the image of God. But mankind consists of two sexes. Not three. Or four. Or five. Or six. Or however many the latest gender studies report puts out. There's two. Amen? Man and woman. <clears throat> now, verse 28. God blesses, blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule. You see that again. Now, in addition to the commission that God had given them to rule that we saw in verse 27, he fills it out and adds another piece to it. We're supposed to fill the earth. We're supposed to populate the earth. Adam and Eve were to have children and mankind was to rule. And apparently it was not just two people were Adam and Eve weren't supposed to run the whole earth. That's a big operation. There's it's going to be a whole bunch of them, lots of Adams and Eves. And we're all going to be out there running this earth together. I call this the first commission. Often we we speak of the great commission. What Jesus gave to the church to go and make disciples of all the earth. But this is the first commission from God to mankind. And it has two parts in it. Fill the earth and rule the earth. Run this earth. Manage it. It's a stewardship from you. You're the steward. Take care of this, this earth. 
You're, in other words, Adam and Eve were like God's representatives on the earth. They're, they're now supposed to run the earth in God's, on, on God's behalf. Now, there's two points in the description of the human beings. Remember, we bear God's image and we're male and female. Interesting that there's two parts also to the commission. We're to rule and we're to fill the earth. There's a correspondence between those two. We both, man and woman, we both share in this commission and we both um, are a part of carrying it out. The man does not rule the earth by himself. The woman is there too. And the man and woman rule together. The man doesn't reproduce by himself. The man and woman, they reproduce together. And then you see in verse 31, it says, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Here we see that now as God is saying, this is this arrangement now is very, very good. There's a contrast here. You see, if you look back at Genesis chapter one, verse four. Well, it says my notes say four, but I'm not finding it. <laughs> look at uh, verse 10. It says God called the dry land earth and gathered the waters. He called them seas and he, and he saw that it was good. So in verse 10, he says he's created a certain amount. He says this is good. You get to verse 12. It's the same thing at the end of the verse. He does some more and it's, it's good. You get to verse 18. He's created some more and it says it was good. In verse 21 and 25, it's the same. He does this much and he says it's good. He does this much, he says it's good. And then he gets to the creation of man and he gets done with that and he says very good in verse 31. Amen? The creation of man, mankind, we are the, we are the, the, um, the peak of God's creation. We're the crown of God's creation. His creation, his design and creation is excellent. It's an amazing picture. I, we, we watched, I was a little brain dead by the end of this week. So I went and got, I'd, I'd heard about this. Disney had put out uh, this video or movie called Earth. Has, have you, any of you seen that? It's a hymn book actually. You know, when you take hymn books and you read and you worship God, I don't know if they knew that's what they were doing, but that's what it is. It took them five years to make it, and they, 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 they spent time in all around the earth. And they followed a polar bear family, an elephant family, and a, and a humpback whale family in the midst of everything else. And you look at this earth that God has made. You know, Avatar came out. Anybody know what Avatar is? Some of you know that and not the other one. Now get earth and watch it. Because Avatar, the guys who made all the computer graphics, tried to think of a, a really wild place that was beautiful. Well, guess what? It was already made. It's this earth. The flocks of birds, the, the, the creatures in the sea, the change of the seasons, the plants, the animals, how it all works together. God makes this, uh, this enormously fascinating and wonderful globe. And he puts a man and a woman on it and says, now run this for me together. 
You two are in my image. Now run this earth together. Friends, that's what we were put here for. That's what we were put here for. To to do that. And out of that would have come society and economics and science and and development. And it would have all happened perfectly and marvelously without without damaging the earth and without damaging each other except chapter 3 came and messed it up but he never rescinded what he that first commandment from us he says that's what you're here for now do it and and the wonder of it is too is that he's saying now do it together man and woman do it together And nothing is really said outright in chapter 1 about the roles between the sexes. There's a little bit of a hint in verse 27 when it says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And that word them in the Hebrew, which this is written in Hebrew first, is a masculine plural word. He could have said them feminine, but he didn't. He said them masculine. And that doesn't prove anything by itself, but there's this little hint that, okay, I wonder what that means. And there is stated already that there's a difference between men and women, but we rule together. Now, go to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 4. God starts to, to show more. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. You see, chapter 1 is an overview. Chapter 2 now focuses on the creation of man and its significance. Verse 5, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth. Then he goes on in verse 7, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. We see here something different, again, about the creation of man versus the creation of the others. Here, there's a, it's a personal creation. God is personally forming him out of the dust of the ground. And he breathes, so to speak, life right into his, in, into his being. And Adam becomes alive, different than the animals, different than the creation of the animals. Much more personal. And note... That Adam, though, was formed from the ground. You see that? That becomes significant in a moment. Now let's keep going. Verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will die. We note a couple observations. The woman was not yet created the man was created first think about that for a moment several times in the new testament when it refers back to here it does that same thing it says adam was created before eve not eve before adam and there's some significance into that think of it if god god could have created the woman first and then the man right he could have created them pow both at the same time But he didn't. He created the man. And then note that here in this passage, Adam is receiving a command from God. And there is no reference in any of the scripture 
to God directly commanding the woman this. Apparently, what's happening is God creates Adam, puts him in the garden, gives him this command, and now Adam has to make sure later when Eve comes along that he tells her. Right? There's no reference that God came down and told Eve. He told Adam, and the message has to get to Eve in that way. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. This is great contrast to everything we've seen already, that this is very good. It's not good for him to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. Naming, as one commentator says, is a ruling function. Parents give names to their children. It's not vice versa. Others don't do it either. You see, what's happening is Adam is beginning to to rule over creation, to take his place and do what he's supposed to do. And he's giving the names to the animals. But there's something else going on here. There's no, he doesn't have a helper suitable for him. And here comes the giraffe. And he says, man, that is wild. You know, and I think I'll name that giraffe, you know, and then I'm not exactly sure how he came up with all the names. And then, you know, hippopotamus and that's great. And chickens came along and frogs and birds of paradise and all this stuff comes by and he's all in, but the whole time he's alone. Then. Verse 20, the man gave names to the cattle and to the birds and the beasts. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. The animals couldn't do it. This kind of helper suitable for the man is not like a horse. The horse might help the man do his work, but it's not that kind of helper suitable for him. To rule the earth and to fill the earth. You see, you could ask the question here, a helper to help him do what? Help, what do you mean help him? Help him fulfill the command, the first commission that God gave mankind. Rule the earth and fill the earth. That's the helper he needed. He needed someone to enable him to do that. The horse couldn't do it. The dog couldn't do it. The cats couldn't do it. So he's there with nothing. And then verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs. How interesting is this? So now God is going to create woman and he's going to do it not from the dust where Adam was created and where all the animals were created. He goes right into Adam and takes a part of him and creates the woman from from Adam himself. That's the contrast we see. And then, so he, he brings the woman to him. You see there in 22, he brings her to him. And remember, he, put, he, had, he had used anesthesia on Adam first. He was asleep, takes out his rib, makes the woman. I don't know, what was it like? He says, okay, my daughter, Eve, go over here for a second. And he says, hey, Adam, wake up. He gets up. Say, Adam, I have one more part of my creation you haven't seen. And he goes, Eve, come here. 
And she walks out from behind some trees and he so he goes, wow. That was in the Hebrew. And you look at verse 23. Look what he says. This is the first recorded words of a human. And it's poetry. And it's poetry between a man and a woman. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of me. You see here, here he, he sees her and he knows she is like me. She's one of me. We are the same. And now together we're going to go out into this phenomenal world that God has made and fulfill his commission, the first commission, to fill it and to rule over it, to manage it, to be stewards of it for his glory. And then it says in verse 24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. You see here that physical relations between a man and a woman are just that. They are between a man and a woman, not between a man and a man, not between a a woman and a woman, not between a man and several women, not between a woman and several men. See, this is this is the plan. Think about it. God could have created another man and brought him to Adam, right? God could have made two women. God could have taken Adam and made four women. I'll take four ribs out. You know, here they are. One man, one woman. My friends, that is what sex is about. And this is, this is what this is talking about. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, woman. And they will become one flesh. No other arrangement is within God's design. And that physical union between a man and his wife is based on the way we were created for God's design in creation. It's not based on our feelings. It's not based on what we think we are. It's not based upon our own confusion. It's based upon creation. God made man and woman together. And then it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. I decided I better, I better not talk about that in public. Okay. Now, what can we get from this, this passage? I'm running out of time. How do we summarize this? And I, I think I, I, I thought of as I was envisioning all of this, trying to picture God's design for men and women together. Four phrases came into my mind, four two-word phrases that describe this plan of God. Number one is utmost dignity, utmost dignity. You and I are created by God and we have his image. We bear the image of God and we are the crown of his creation. No matter what evolutionists say and how they try to flatten it all out, that we're just like people. You know, there was somebody in a courtroom, I think. Anyway, people are doing crazy stuff, trying to get equal rights for Animals like equal to us and even giving them lawyers and stuff. So pets are suing their owners. Yeah. 
But no, this, this scripture saying we are of utmost dignity. We bear God's image together, man and woman. We're the crown of creation. We've been personally created by God and we're entrusted with responsibility. We have joint dignity together, man and, and wife, man and woman. And then number two, profound responsibility. That first commission that God gave us is, is unbelievably marvelous. And blessed is a man and woman today who sees, by the way, his or her work as fitting into that first commission of filling and ruling over the earth. When someone gives you a job to do, it makes a difference, doesn't it, with who that someone is. I was talking with someone recently from another state. This person is a a superintendent in a school district in another state. She was asked by the governor of that state to serve on a on a study committee about some issues in education. And she's the only the only superintendent from the whole state asked to be on this commission. Well, that's pretty cool, right? It's a Christian, by the way. So she gets chosen by the governor. And given a job to do by the governor. All politics aside, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They're just trying to get a job done here. So it's like, this is pretty cool, right? Hey, why don't we go over to, let's go, you know, let's go do this or that. No, I'm doing something for the governor. When somebody of high rank gives you a job to do, it speaks of, of, of um, value and, and that person's entrusting something to you. Friends, we've been entrusted by God. With a profound responsibility to, to run things on this globe for his glory. And we've been giving it, given that responsibility together. Number three, masterful design. Masterful design. Implicit in all of this description is the fact that we are different. Male and female are different. We've already seen that the male was created first and the woman is to be a helper suitable to him. He didn't create... Adam to be a helper to Eve. He created Eve to be a helper to Adam. There's purpose in that. And we'll talk about some of it later. Raymond Ortland Jr. says this in the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God glorifying direction. There is indeed, there are indeed roles that are different. We are different. Amen. Anybody notice? We are different. And that's okay. It doesn't doesn't conflict with our dignity and the profoundness of our responsibility. And we'll explore some of those differences as we go along. And then lastly, unfathomable joy. Unfathomable joy. To be placed on this earth. To be put together, man and woman. To have meaningful work to do, profound and undescribable joy would have been theirs. Amen? And that's the picture of what God has designed for manhood and womanhood and men and women together to be. We're to live like that with dignity and responsibility, fitting in with the way he's designed us and experiencing the joy that he has for us. I know chapter 3 comes and sin ruins it or severely mars it. But God has come then in Jesus Christ and is enabling us to start reversing 
the effects of the fall. Amen? And we can see Christ change us. And what I want us to do is to strive not for Genesis 1 and 2. Let's, let's let that be what we want for our marriages and for our lives and for our relationships with each other. Let's let this picture drive our decisions and move us forward in rediscovering and living biblical manhood and womanhood. I don't want to go back to the 1950s. I don't want to go back somewhere before feminism gained ground and say, see, that's what I want to go back to. I don't think they had it right then. I want to go forward to Genesis 1 and 2. (laughs) That's where I want to go. Or if I want to go back, I want to go back there. Can you imagine the impact of Christians in this country understanding and living out the design of God for us in the midst of the confusion of this culture? It would be a powerful, powerful drawing card to people. Say, I want, I want what you have. Where do you get that joy? And people would taste Christ in us and come to him. Well, our time is up. It's a big subject. Be in prayer as we continue to investigate it. And, and let's pray that God would, would raise us up with a new vision to be men and women as we ought to be. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time in your word. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would have your way with us. And that in the midst of the confusion of our culture, you would give us clarity and give us joy. And enable us, O Lord, to to be the men and women that you want, to live as you, you wish, and that our joy in you and in our freedom and being who we are would just be used of you to draw many to face up to their own creator and to find joy in him too. I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord bless. Lord bless.